Thanks for tuning into the Glenridge Church message. It's great to have you with us. Our mission is to love God, love people, and live to change the world. If we can help you in any way at all, feel free to reach out to us on hello at glenridge.org.za. Right, we're carrying on with the, the study of the book of Joshua. I thought I'd take a slightly different tack tonight. Um, I'm going to be talking about Joshua, the person, as opposed to just the book. And um, if you want to make a title, it's Joshua, his story, because all of history is God's story. It's his story. Sometimes I'm asked, why? Why is the Bible so long? Why do we have all these different stories from all different people? Why, why would God do it that way? Wouldn't it be simpler, I suppose, if we just had a list of instructions? Wouldn't that be easier? But the thing is that God has chosen to reveal what He's like in interactions with people over, over centuries. Um, the Bible is, is written, I think it's by 66 different people under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what the story, what, what theologians call the meta-narrative is, is, is the, the, the story of God interacting with, with all of humanity all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And a, and a great portion of that is how he interacts with Joshua, the man Joshua. So we're going to be looking at a number of points about Joshua's story. It's going to be a brief biography of Joshua. I couldn't do everything. It was quite an interesting uh, exercise looking at, at what his life was about and what he was like. So I'm going to draw a few ideas about his life and see if there's not anything there that we can use in our walk and in this season for Glenridge. The first is that, that Joshua's name was not Joshua. His name is Hoshea. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Hoshea means salvation. Joshua means Yahweh saves. Joshua is the name that Moses gave, or God, speaking through Moses, gave to Hoshua. If, if um, Joshua's mom called him to come to dinner, this is what you would hear. Yeshua. If Mary, the mother of Jesus, called Jesus to come to dinner, this is what you'd hear. Yeshua. It's exactly the same name. So, so in the Bible, we have a thing called typology. And typology means that, that we have people who represent something greater than themselves. Moses was a type of Christ. He uh, or uh, a representation of Christ in that he drew the people of God out of slavery and, and into the journey towards the promised land, just like Jesus. Joshua, Yeshua, like Jesus, took the people from the wilderness into the promised land. So, so Yeshua, whichever way you look at it, Joshua representing Jesus, is a very important figure. And what he does and the way he behaves is an important pointer for us today to see something of what Jesus has in mind. So I've drawn out a couple of characteristics of, what, of, of Joshua's life. I'm going, to, I'm going to say Joshua because it's so much easier to say than Yeshua. Um, the first is that he was prepared to do the work. What do I mean by that? Well, in, in, in the text leading up to the, the, the commencement of the book of Joshua, you'll see that there's a story 
about Joshua leading out the enemies, leading out the armies, rather, of Israel against the enemies of Israel. And Moses is standing on a hill and holding his hands up. You know the story? And as Moses held his hands up, the Israelites prevailed, and as soon as his hands dropped down, the, the Israelites struggled. So, so Moses got his mace to help hold his hands up, and the Israelites won. But the important part about this story for our purposes is that Joshua was at the front of the army. So Joshua was prepared to do the work, while Moses, the leader, was raising his hands to God. And I think that there's something in that for us. Sometimes we want to be the guy standing on the mountain with our hands raised, very much the, the, the focal point of what God is doing, but, but God also needs people in the army out there fighting the battles and doing the work. And, and as I read that story, I thought, isn't it, isn't it amazing how God didn't just call Moses to raise his hands and people to help him, but, but called Joshua to get out there and fight and called the people who are following Joshua in the army to do the battle as well. And there's, there's, a, there's a real sense of community, every part, like the, the gifts behind me, every part doing its, playing its role. Um, there's, a, there's an interdependence, one depending on the other in God, for the fullness of the purpose of God to be accomplished. Secondly, if you had to define what, what was the chief characteristic of Joshua, especially in his early years, and this had a profound impact on his later years, is, is that he was absolutely relentless in the pursuit of the presence of God. There's a, there's a picture. Joshua was Moses' assistant. So he was, I'm not sure what assistant meant in that context, but he was probably, he was probably the guy who walked with Moses and helped him do stuff. We get, we get that image when Moses ascends the mountain of God to go and meet God face to face. Joshua walks with him to a point. And then there's a point at which he stays, and Moses goes up ahead and, and meets God. And, and that was, as I was reading it, I thought, in some respects, that must have been quite difficult. If it was me, I'd want to be next to Moses when he's meeting God face to face. And he was prepared to, to, to tuck in to the ministry of another and to allow Moses to go ahead and accomplish his purpose and his calling, and to wait. Even though, even though his desire was for the presence and the purpose of God. Um, I'm, I'm going to call that godly FOMO. <laughs> and, and, and nowhere do you see it clearer than in Exodus chapter 33, verses 7 to 11 says this, now Moses used to take the tent, that's the tent of the presence of God, the tent of the tabernacle, and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and, mo and watch Moses until he'd gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. 
Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So Joshua was not satisfied with being at his tent. He wanted to be where the action was. He wanted to be at the very tent where God was meeting with, with Moses. It struck me as I was reading this that if, if the pillar of cloud was at the entrance to the tent when God was meeting with Moses, then Joshua was right there where the pillar was. One of the reasons Joshua was equipped to do what he needed to do to see the people of Israel fulfill their destiny was, was that he was absolutely relentless in the pursuit of the presence of God. He wanted to be where God was moving. I know someone like that, Kathy. Kathy, Kathy is, is like, I don't know how to describe it. Um, restless is not strong enough. Just absolutely not happy unless she's in the thick of where God is working and moving and doing stuff. And she is so frustrated when that isn't the place that she is. And I think that that's something that, that God values very highly. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite songs, uh, many of you will recognize the singer uh, or the band, says, uh, the opposite of love is indifference. It's not hatred, it's indifference. And I, I think that, that, that the pursuit of the presence of God is an expression of love. Another, sorry, my numbers are a little out here. The third thing that struck me about Joshua is that he was teachable. Um, there's there's a, an amusing incident where, where it's reported to Joshua that people are prophesying in the name of God. And he's, he goes to Moses and he says, Moses, tell him to stop. And Moses says, are you jealous for me? I wish that all of you would prophesy in the name of the Lord. And and there was a picture here of, of Moses teaching Joshua that it's not about the ministry, it's about the kingdom advancing. It's not about, it's not about protecting one person's um, space or calling in God at the cost of others. It's about the kingdom of God advancing. And, and, and Moses desired that everyone would experience the power and the presence of God to step into the fullness of their own gifts. Moses taught him to be jealous, not for the ministry, but for the advancement of the kingdom. The fourth thing about Joshua, and I think this is the most, um, the, the clearest thing that's come out tonight, is that he had eyes of faith. He was one of the spies, and, and of all of the spies, only he and Caleb saw what God could do. Saw, saw the, the land flowing with milk and honey, everybody saw that. Everybody saw the giants, but only Caleb and Joshua saw that God had given the land into their hand. Incidentally, if you've ever wondered why it's described as a land flowing with milk and honey, anyone thought about that? Any idea of what that could mean? Okay, milk comes from cows, okay? Cows are domesticated, so that means what, what people cultivate. Honey comes from 
Bees, bees are wild. You have to work at them, at getting honey from them, and you get stung. So, so a, a land flowing with milk and honey is a land that's great for farming and also has resources from the wild. So it's a land with everything. Anyway, back to the point. So he saw with, with Caleb what um, God would do. I'm going to do a, a brief excursus or a little sidestep with Caleb. Uh, Caleb means dog. That's, that's literally what it means. I had a, a magnificent cat. It was part chinchilla, I think, and part Persian. And it was a big, fluffy beast of a cat. And his name was Caleb. I didn't know when I named him Caleb that Caleb meant dog. And, and he was the most remarkable cat. He would insist on playing fetch with me. And, and, and if there was a stranger he didn't recognize, and he'd kind of growl at the guy. So he took it quite seriously. But, but I, I think that there's a very good reason that Caleb was called Caleb in the Bible. It's because he was like a dog with a bone. He would not let it go. He would not let the purposes of God go, and he would not let the vision of God go, irrespective of the circumstances. And it struck me that, that Joshua and Caleb were a formidable team. As I was reading this afternoon about, about Caleb, uh, Caleb was 45 when he spied out the land. He was 85 when he was given his portion in Israel. And the Bible says, he said of himself, Caleb said, I'm as strong as I ever was. Give me the hill country with the giants. That's where I want to go. Give it to me, I'll sort them out. God will accomplish a great victory in me. Give it to me. Like a freaking dog with a bone. <laughs> Caleb's capacity to see the eternal in the immediate equipped him for a life that didn't fade. He finished strong. And if we're going to finish strong, we need to surround ourselves with Caleb's. Who you keep company with has a profound impact on how you walk with God. A profound impact. We need to be careful to fellowship up all the time. All the time. That doesn't mean that you're not going to have friends around you who are weak in faith. Of course you will. Because you're going to be the Caleb to them. Right? But we need to be constantly looking for people, fellowshipping with people who are, who are giants and growing giants in the faith. So that when, when, when adversity comes, you're not with the 10 guys who say, we can't do this. You're with the guy who says, bring it on. Yeah, that's the end of my excuses. So, incidentally, the other thing that struck me about uh, Joshua and Caleb is when, when the people listen to the 10, other spies. Joshua and Caleb tore their clothes. They rent their garments in good King James language. They were so grieved at the deep sin of not seeing things as God did. And, 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 and Caleb silenced the people. Hang around with the right people. Right, fifth characteristic of Joshua. He was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Deuteronomy 34 verse 9 says this, And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, 
for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Numbers 27 verses 18 to 21 says this, So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. Joshua was full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. Moses and God recognized it, that in him. Moses laid hands on him, and he was commissioned to accomplish the purposes of God. We're in a commissioning phase of this church, one of many, but it's, it's a profoundly commissioning phase where people are, and it doesn't mean that the elders have to lay hands on you but but God is going to lay hands on you to accomplish the purpose for which God has set you apart and consecrated you and made you for this very moment in in his story to accomplish his purposes number five Joshua was ruthless with idols he recognized that to enter the promised land the rivals for God's affection must be destroyed. I'm going to just mention briefly this guy called Achan, who, contrary to the, to the command, kept some good stuff of the spoils, and he and his family were destroyed. Which sounds really harsh to us, but Joshua understood that for the whole nation to enter into the fullness of God's purposes, they couldn't take idols with them. Have you thought of this? Of of, of the entire generation that left Egypt, only two, there was millions of people, only two entered the Promised Land, Joshua and Caleb. The rest died. Because everyone else, except Moses, Moses struck a rock in anger and, and he, he messed up, but, but everyone else carried their idols with them. And God would not permit those idols into the Promised Land. And I wonder whether, whether we're able to enter the fullness of God's purposes for us if we let our idols live within us. I think that there's, there's something in that, being ruthless with idols, those things that, that uh, wrestle with, with us for God's affection. Joshua 24 says, Now therefore fear the Lord, this is Joshua speaking, and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve Yahweh. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve Yahweh, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you will dwell. doesn't matter which side of the Jordan you, you, you're in, there are always going to be rival gods. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. And it showed. Six, he was strong and courageous. There's a repeated refrain to Joshua from Moses, from God, be strong and very courageous. Courageous is not fearless. When people say, no, you've got to be fearless. No, no, none of us are fearless. Fear is a, is a, is a rational response sometimes to danger. Courage is overcoming fear. It's not fearlessness. Seven, 
Joshua listened to God. Joshua had been uh, a leader in the army of Israel, and he got to Jericho, and, and up until that point, he had fought battles in Israel's army with a sword. That he knew. Then along comes Jericho, and God tells him to do something completely different. He listened to God, and he did it. It makes absolutely no sense in the natural to, to wander around a, a, a city and shout at it and for walls to come down. Now, I must tell you, if that happened today, it would not be a week, and there'd be 10 Christian bestsellers, How to Take Your City for God. Seven easy steps. <laughs> Guaranteed. Joshua understood that God is not a formula. He's a, he's a, he's a being. He is God. And to, to, to win the specific battles that God had called him to fight, he needed the specific strategy God had for that battle. He was able to listen to God. You know, the one time he didn't listen to God, the Gibeonites conned him. They came with a long story and, and said, no, please make a covenant with us. And, and he said, no, I'm not making covenants with anybody God's commanded me. He said, no, 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 look, we've come from a long distance. We're not one of your neighbors. Look at our crumbly bread. Look at our, our sandals. We've got holes in them. Our clothes are all full of holes. We're clearly not from among you. And the Bible says, and he did not seek God's counsel. And he made a covenant. And he, then he was stuck with these people because he'd made a covenant and he couldn't, couldn't kill them. Um, that can be a problem. Uh, I, I was telling you about Caleb the, the Magnificent, my cat. It's a glorious cat. I miss him desperately. Uh, we, we had Caleb, and one day a very cute stray cat came into our house and started eating Caleb's food. And, and we called him Patches. He was a very cute, affectionate cat. And he would come and climb on you and give you purrs, and he was just... A delightful cat. He had no collar. We accepted that he was probably a stray, and we let him eat food. And, and after a while, he started peeing on everything and scratching our other cats and, and just creating chaos. It was too late. He'd moved in. And, and he, he actually gave my other two cats feline AIDS, and our cats died. And it, it struck me, thinking about that, that that's what sin does. When you, make, when you make relationships with things that are destructive, they're cool when they come in, and then they start destroying everything, and then everything of value dies. So Patches, Futsack, uh, <laughs> Patches went to the SPCA and escaped as soon as I opened the car door. He was not stupid. Ah, <laughs> oh, Patches. Right, number eight. Joshua crossed the Red Sea, crossed the Jordan. Remember, I said at the beginning that he was a, he was a picture of, of of Jesus. Now Moses, you'll remember, crossed the Red Sea, and he he, he caused the Israelites to cross the Red Sea on dry land. Um, I've I've been to the place where where the Israelites are said to have crossed, and and our a uh, very non-Christian tour guy said to us while we were looking at this place, he said, well, what happened was it's, 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 it was a low tide. It was a very low tide. 
And, and what happened, there was a very low tide, and the Israelites crossed, and then the tide rose, and, and the Egyptians couldn't cross. And, and a big Afrikaans guy standing next to me said to me in Afrikaans, isn't it a miracle how God drowned all those Egyptians in ankle-deep water? <laughs> so <laughs> sometimes it takes more faith to believe the, the other version. Um, Jesus also had a, a parting, had, a, had a, a pivotal moment at the Jordan River. See what you mean about spit. Also had a pivotal moment at the Jordan River. That's where he was baptized. And, and God spoke from heaven and declared this was his son with him, whom he was well pleased. These are not coincidences. Because, because those, that was the launching of Jesus' ministry. And this, this is a moment where, where Israel is about to enter the promised land that is very much a figure, it's a, it's a type, it's a, it's a picture of Jesus' work and his ministry to us. And the interesting thing is, when, when the, the water stood up at a heap, as, as the Israelites, the, the, the priests held the, the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders, and they stood in the midst of the, the, the Jordan, and the river backed up. You know where it backed up to? Adam. Backed up to a town called Adam. So when Jesus hits, hits the Jordan and God declares his purposes over him and is, he's well pleased, the rivers which represent um, chaos and, and, and actually the dominion of other gods backed up all the way to Adam. Because God's redemptive purposes were present in the garden and nothing took him by surprise. But what if you don't want to cross over? What if you're an Israelite and you get to the, to the River Jordan and you decide, I know I'm unlikely to get my feet wet, but I don't know about the, the giants on the other side of this thing. I'm going to read from my favorite book. A little town called Buzia wedges up between the border between Kenya and Uganda. Buzia has a scattering of ramshackle buildings, a nest of narrow, dusty streets. The air is hazy from the smoke of open fires. The streets are overcrowded with hawkers and money changers. As you walk, toothless and toothy men thrust at you bundles of money for exchange, soapstone dishes, wood carvings, beadwork, baskets. You must set your face like flint and walk steady, but not too fast. Buzia is a place of crossing. It is, actually, a place of double crossing. You cannot take a car from one country to the other. You have to walk the dusty earth between them. You go through the Uganda customs, a wood hut that splices together two lengths of steel mesh fence crowned with coils of barbed wire. The man in the hut wants to know why you're leaving his country, what you're taking with you, what you're leaving behind. He frisks you. He'll take a bribe if you want to avoid all of this. Then you step into a brick building with several men who shuffle and stamp papers. Put money in their palms, especially American money. And you can speed things up here too. You step out of the brick building thinking you've made it, that you're in Kenya. You're not. This, as I said, is a double crossing. Kenya has its own customs office, its brick building, with its own huddle of men shuffling, stamping papers. In between the two brick buildings, the Ugandan one and the Kenya one, is a patch of ground. It's not large, maybe 100 yards wide, maybe 300 yards long. It's borderland. 
It's no man's land, claimed or defended by neither country. All laws are suspended here. Shoot a man, rob him, beat him. The guards on either side would watch, still unmoved. There are two borders then, two crossings to make, the Uganda one and the Kenyan one. The two borders are testimony to an ancient blood feud between countries. They are brothers who refuse to speak to one another. And in between these two borders, this double crossing is borderland. Why would anyone choose to be stuck here? Because actually it's safe. It's familiar. It's ground that can be staked out, marked off, well trod, packed down. It holds some things in and keeps some things out. It may take endurance to live here, but not much else. It's the endurance of inertia. Life there requires no discipline, but falls into neat routines. It's domesticated lawlessness. It's chaotic, but predictable. Borderland may be dangerous, but even more, it's safe. Borderland is a political and a geographical reality, but it's also a metaphor. There is a blood feud that divides Christ's domain from the world's, and a cross marks its crossing. Salvation is stepping over the boundary from our old life, the old land. Freedom from its rule, its laws, its gods. It's coming home from the far country. But sanctification in the journey into the new land, learning to dwell gladly in the Father's house. goes on to say, We go to Bible college, I'm leaving a chunk out, hoping that we will, it will inoculate against spiritual languor, will create in us robust faith, but many theological schools and Bible colleges are built in borderlands. There is the danger in some, such places that we will learn much about God and at the same time grow distant from God. We will study the intricacies of doctrine, but we will lose passion. We will become eloquent at God talk, but cease talking to God. We go to church, we sing, we pray, we listen to the word, read and read and preached. Maybe we take notes, maybe we even lead some of it. And maybe with our slow hearts burning within us, but walking away, just strolling to our car in the church parking lot, 57 seven steps away, the conviction, he's alive, dribbles down like water held in the hand. Monday morning, it's still hard to get out of bed. See, the Israelites had left Egypt but they hadn't entered the promised land. They were in borderland. They were in that space where we as Christians sometimes find ourselves, where we're, we're no longer in the world, but we're not quite in the kingdom either. Borderland. Where, where, where you can carry your gods in your pocket, but not really fully serve the God you can't carry in your pocket. I thought in preparation for this sermon that perhaps, perhaps the moment of crossing the Jordan isn't the best description, although it's, it's true in part of where, where Glenridge is, because we live in the promised land, right? We're already there. Maybe, maybe the better metaphor is, is a little further down the line where, where Israel starts having its, its allotted space given to it. And, and Joshua dies at this time. He's 110 years old, if I'm not mistaken. And, but Israel is given the land that is conquered, but there's still a whole lot of land still to be conquered. And that's maybe the borderland for us. 
We walk as Glenridge in the promises and the space of previous generations. But there's more. There are giants we've got to face. There's, there's, there's space we've got to occupy and take ground in that previous generations haven't because it wasn't their space to take, it's ours. It's not that we're not in promised land, we're in the promised land, but there's more. And, and the picture for me was, was Joshua. It said Joshua and Caleb, but, but Joshua particularly, was, was in a space where he represented the previous generation because all of the others had died, and he represented the new generation because he was the one in the promised land. He held both, and so too do we. We're in an incredible space where we have the opportunity to step out of borderland and into the space where we're occupying the land and slaying the giants that God has put forward in eternity for us to accomplish. Joshua did this um, point nine by rededication of the people. He, he read out the law again, he wrote it down again, and he, he circumcised an entire generation that had not been circumcised. Now, circumcision is a sore point. But, but it's important because that was a whole generation that had not been dedicated. The, 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 the Jews in, who'd come out of Egypt were circumcised. Oh, I'm going to get it in the neck when I get up. Um, but here was an entire generation that was born in the desert and hadn't been dedicated, rededicated to God. Jesus, uh, Joshua came face to face with the commander of the Lord, with the commander of the armies of the Lord. And he says to this commander of the, the armies of the Lord, he says, are you with us or against us? And uh, being God, the, the commander says, no, the place where you're standing is holy. Take your shoes off. Exactly what what happened in the burning bush incident with Moses. And, and Joshua falls in his face and worships, and unlike angels who would have said, stand up, you can't worship me, I'm not God, it appears that the, the worship was received. So, so here's this man, Jesus, standing with his sword drawn, and, and he speaks to Joshua. And it occurs to me that at the phase that we're in, where the language that is being used is the language of warfare, where the language that we're, the, the pictures we're getting of aircraft carriers, um, not, not, not fluffy lambs, but aircraft carriers. I wonder whether we're not standing before the commander of the armies of God who's standing with his sword drawn and saying, we've got battles to win. I think that's the space that we're in. Finally, sorry, it's run a little bit long. Finally, Joshua took up his inheritance as a profound leader. You know that he took his inheritance last? Let everybody else take their inheritance first. That's what leaders do. There's, there's a book out at the moment called uh, Leaders Eat Last. And, and if you go to Bring and Share here, you'll see guys like, like Paul and, and uh, Stan and others stand back and let everyone eat first. I watched it. 
That's what leaders do. But he finished strong and he left a legacy. This is what it says in Joshua 24, verse 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known the work that the Lord did for Israel. So, so Israel served God throughout Joshua's leadership and throughout the lifetime of those who'd come out of the desert, out of the wilderness, and into the promised land, their lifetime. The impact of Joshua's leadership was such that the next generation carried on walking in the purposes of God. That's a profound thing. And, and that's the age that we're in, I believe. What we do now, Glenridge, what we do now, how we lead now, how we lead ourselves, how we lead others, how we lead the space that God has given us, how we lead the, the, the destiny and the purposes of God that he's, he's given to us, is going to have a profound impact on how the next generation is going to live. And we stand, like Joshua, I believe, with one hand on, on the, the purposes and the promises and the space that the previous generation fought for, and one hand on the stuff that we're going to fight for. And the question is this, what are you going to do with it? What am I going to do with it? It's, it's such a profound opportunity. Now, I really sense the presence of, and, and the purpose of God in this time and in this space. Uh, Kathy will tell you, it's, it's one of my pet peeves when you go to any, any leadership conference or, or any church gathering, any description, you'll have 10 people say it's a new season. I'm like, it can't always be a new season. Surely not. Because then what happens to the last one? But that's not where we are. This is actually a genuine new season. And, and what we do now, I think, is going to echo in eternity. Amen. Cool. Done.